In this podcast, I challenge the assumption that academic science writing in general is quality writing, and I suggest instead you could properly understand it better as the dominant form of writing in higher education. A reason this form continues to dominate is that in the high-pressured world of academia, we do not have time to hone our writing craft. Peer review, while it's vital for many reasons, means that an essential part of the review process is about the research content and not the representation quality. Peer review also means that amateur editors, such as myself, are part of the process. This is why style guides are leaned on very heavily and stultifying article or manuscript templates detail how exactly a research article should be laid out. Busy academics are able to rely on these rules as measures of quality instead of understanding that they're simplistic reductionist guides. So in this third podcast, Publish and Persevere, a series that accompanies my book, Writing and Representing Qualitative Research, published by SAGE, I'm going to discuss honing qualitative research accounts. If you want to know when the next podcasts are posted or find previous podcasts, infographics, PDFs, uh, other qualitative information, make your way to my website, marialayman.com, and opt into my communication, my communications which are concise, content-heavy, and infrequent. Qualitative is stronger in community. So what does the word hone mean? Combining, so by this I mean H-O-N-E, hone. Combining various definitions to hone is the act of using a whetstone to sharpen or smooth a tool such as a knife, but metaphorically it's come to mean the refining of a skill to make it more acute, effective, and improved. Synonyms for hone include cultivate, develop, perfect, polish, refine. So honing the craft of writing for writing, writers such as myself can be an effort to strengthen our writing or, for a skilled writer, a way to polish their final draft into a glossy sheen. This is not a bid towards perfectionism. Perfectionism, writes Anne Lamott, is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. It will keep you cramped and insane your whole life, and it is the main obstacle between you and a shitty first draft. So I'm promoting honing instead as an ongoing process of becoming a skilled writer through multiple writing representations over your career. Towards this end, I'm going to review a few ideas for honing the craft of writing. It was a dark and stormy night. First sentences. So in the world of literature, a lot has been made around the importance of first sentences, the paragraph or the hook. But in academia, it would seem like writers avoid an interesting opening in favor of a dry entry on purpose. So think to yourself, in this article or the authors. And I would imagine this is due to notions of objective writing. Behind every objective, air quote, article is a very subjective being and a subjective process. So this doesn't create much interest for a reader at all. Zinzer wrote, the most important sentence in any article is the first one. It doesn't, if it doesn't induce the reader to proceed to the second sentence, your article is dead. It's as dark and stormy night is probably the most infamous first sentence in the English language. It's been made much fun of in literature, movies, speeches. It's a staple of the Peanuts comics. You can imagine Snoopy the Beagle being depicted over and over on top of his doghouse, pounding out the sentence on a manual typewriter, tapping into the universal experience of writer's block. 
So as a qualitative researcher writer, how should we open our work? How might we? A traditional thematic article, a qualitative thematic article, will likely have that obligatory yet helpful orienting paragraph that reads almost just like the abstract. However, consider situating a concisely written attention-capturing opening before this paragraph. Colley, in a 2008 article, calls this opening with text that is vivid and vital and points out that skilled writers understand how conversation captures readers' attention. So as qualitative researchers, we have vast amount of conversation, interview transcripts, uh, observations that we've taken about research. What quote would seem the most salient to place at the front of the article that captures the overall idea of the findings? And the other thing this does is it completely places the reader in the data from the from the outset so that they know this is a data forward article. I'm going to have access to the data. What vignette or micro portrait might situate the reader in the context of the study at hand? Opening sentences may also be a quote that's ripped from the headlines, something from the news, something a famous public figure said, a notable research scholar, a piece of fiction or poetry that's alluded to, a statistic or a research finding that's compelling and orients the reader immediately into the heart of the problem. So just a couple examples. Uh, Bachner wrote in 1997, first sentence of an article, I could not fall asleep. I tossed and turned in my bed, trying to ignore the anxiety churning through my stomach. And then this opening to an article, mea culpa, and that's Denzin, 2010. What is he getting ready to say? Wouldn't you like to know? This is one of my favorite starts to a research book uh, by Magolda. If you haven't read Magolda's work, you'll want to. It's ethnographic about higher ed. The first sentence is, I never hauled trash with a professor before declares Moan, and this is a text about custodians in higher education. <clears throat> this quote is the beginning of a book by Jomanuk. My apologies if I'm not pronouncing names correctly. A professor who encourages the use of Wikipedia is the intellectual equivalent of a dietitian who recommends a steady diet of Big Macs with everything, and I am such a professor. Immediately, what's this book about saying something completely opposite from higher ed? I want to read it. So let's move from openings to consider content. Let's consider weak words. Mark Twain said, substitute damn every time you're inclined to write the word very. Your editor will delete it and the writing will be just as it should be. Try that sometime. It, it's very effective. So I conducted a review of words that different types of writers and editors would like to be, have edited out of their work, and I compiled a list. The full list is uh, in an infographic and in the book, but some of the ones that um, bother me the most and that everybody cited were the word very. It's considered a weak word that adds little. The word that, I ever use the word that, uh, and so I'll often do a search for that and get rid of some of them. Um, and then the linking being verbs, Linking being verbs or words such as am, is, are, was, were, so you can look through those words, uh, words that end with L-Y. You might recall writing teachers' uh, admonishments to show uh, and not tell. And so here's a simple example from my background in early childhood. So you could write, Bob is bad. That's considered weak writing. Instead, Bob stepped on the puppy's tail and laughed. And this gives the rich detail, and the reader is also allowed to interpret what they wanted to think of Bob as, instead of using your word, which is a judgment. So when it comes to showing, Zinzer wrote, 
Verbs are the most important part of all your tools. They push the sentence forward and give it momentum. So I would say describe research in vivid, but not sensational or overdone, active verbs that highlight important aspects of the writing. So let's talk about uh, first person. Traditionally, we all know that we're told to write in third person. And even though I'm going to tell you write in first person whenever possible, I do know that some of the journals you submit to, they will still do third person. But for the social scientists and psychological scientists, you should know that APA style guide is on, I think, perhaps the third manual now that says write in first person. Uh, first, the phrases, the reasons for that APA has blogged about are the phrases, the author or the researcher confuses the reader. They don't know if you're talking about the people that you're reviewing in the literature or if you're talking about the authors of the current manuscript. And second, anthropomorphism, which I do want to remind you is an amazing way to write in creative literature does not work well in our research literature. It causes us to do deadly things, trying to be objective, third person, such as the study demonstrates, the research found, instead of we demonstrated or I found. And then I would add that researchers have been taught to write in third person in order to seem objective. This is a primary reason why qualitative researchers should not write in the third person. We need to write first person. Qualitative research is based on a rejection of false notions of objectivity. Qualitative researchers actively attempt to engage with bias. We understand that people cannot be objective. For us, a false sense of objectivity is not a goal. Instead, we seek deep, reflexive engagement with our biases. One of the podcasts will be completely about reflexivity and how to weave it into our accounts. Qualitative researchers write in first person so re readers can access the research in active ways that help deepen their understanding of context and phenomena of interest. What I would do is check uh, a journal and see if it has examples of first person and third person articles. Find the first person ones and model your writing after that. And if you're doing a qualitative dissertation, you would want to work with your committee uh, using resources to show them why the dissertation should be written in first person. I also want to put forward now several different types of ideas for honing your writing that they're hard for me to uh, solidify into one area. So I'm going to call them paraphernalia. They're bits and bobs, if you if you will. I'm going to cover avoid localism, sentence structure, repetition, overqualifying and pointless self-references, contractions, punctuation, and parallel form. Avoid localism. And United States authors, I'm speaking to us. Your readers may be, and you hope they will be, from all over the world. Writing only in a local context is a problem for authors, particularly us, the ones of us from the United States. So this is a type of nationalism we must rigorously edit out of our work because it single, sing, singles us out as having a myopic perspective to global readership groups. So an example, when I write about early childhood education as a U.S. citizen, I would most likely say something like the children in the research were in first grade. In other countries, this phrase does not always have the same meaning. So instead, state the age of the children and that they're in their first year of full-day school, commonly referred to as first grade in the United States. Another example is referring to a study by a particular state or region or prov province without the country of reference. It's appropriate to say for myself, for example, the study took place in Colorado in the United States of America. Very sentence structure. 
Cut back long sentences with multiple parts. This allows for clarity of thought. However, using only short sentences can create a jarring staccato type of effect, which is referred to as choppy writing. A variety of lengths and types of sentence structure will create a pleasing reading experience for the reader. And this is a kind of revision that can take place as you're moving towards that last draft to submit. Remove pointless repetition. So listen to this. Avoid a towering behemoth. A sobbing, weeping client. So you're adding in more descriptive words that say the exact same thing and using up the precious space in your journal. Avoid beginning pre-service teachers. Childish kids. You're using the same word twice, adding nothing. Identify unnecessary repetition of word that when it's removed doesn't alter the sentence. Avoid what I think of as the tiresome threes. Three supporting sentences to every topic sentence. Three descriptive words for every point. Something from my training from writing in high school, most likely by people that weren't writers themselves. Overqualifying and pointless self-reference. Reduce this. Now, I know we use this because we're hearing uh, past chairs and authority figures saying, now, how do you know that? How can you prove that? So we want to avoid things that say it may be in some cases, in certain ways. If you can edit out this uh, overqualification, your writing will sound much more confident. Can't use contractions? Hmm. As someone that lived in the South of the United States for the bulk of my life, I appreciate the sound of a contraction. It sounds welcoming whenever it pops up. I'm also very suspicious that avoiding contract contractions is another form of racism, regionalism, classism, where someone is managing your language and the way you speak. But on a lighter note, I would say I fully accept expect to see contractions occurring more in writing. I understand they're not used for certain kind of writing because of clarity. You want the whole word written out. However, contractions can keep writing from sounding stuffy. And certainly whenever you're participants or if you're writing an autoethnographic style, use contractions that people would naturally use in conversation. So when we think about punctuation in the area of nonfiction literature, the colon and the semicolon are starting to be seen as stuffy, uh, too formal. So I think academics should start thinking about that. And the first step I think I would suggest is the M dash, E-M dash, which is the long dash. Uh, um, it's the longest dash when you're working out of the hyphen on a keyboard. In academic writing, of course, you won't go wrong with the traditional punctuation, but the M dash can get you out of many tricky situations. Zinzer says there is a 19th century mustiness that hangs over the semicolon. It should be used sparingly by modern writers, and the colon has begun to look even more antique, but it will still be helpful in the case of lists. The punctuation guide, an internet site, says this. Depending on the context, the M dash can take the place of a comma, a parenthesis, or a colon, in each case slightly different, with slightly different effect. The M dash is best limited to two appearances per sentence, otherwise confusion rather than clarity will likely result. I want to briefly talk about parallel forms because it's one of the biggest errors I can see in my own writing. Usually when we think about parallel forms, they're taught within a sentence, so stay in the same form within the sentence. But what I do is I see it within a paragraph or sentences within the paragraph. So I might start, start by saying first, second, and then I'll say thirdly. So we want to stay in the same form, first, second, third, and not change that form. So however you start with the form, finish it that way. And then finally, let's talk about endings. 
A quality conclusion ties up loose ends and may drive the over, overall point home one more time. Uh, some people really appreciate when the ending touches back on the beginning. This is called circularity. We see it in Western comedy, for example. The comedian gets the biggest laugh when their final point hits on the first joke that opened. My dad also called it tucking in the tail. I wish I had the opportunity now to ask him if he meant tail, T-A-L-E, like tucking in the story, or if he meant tail, T-A-I-L, such as tucking in the tail of your shirt, perhaps. I don't know. And I've looked in the literature. I'd love to know if anybody else knows. So tucking in the tail is how I think of it. I've also seen it as circularity. So for us, you've opened with this rich quote from the data. Now you go back and you end with another one. And you have this sense that you, that this researcher also values the data, that the article is data forward. Zinzer says the perfect ending should take your reader slightly by surprise, yet seem exactly right. Uh, a great, a great ending is very hard to write, I would say probably because you're tired. So consider writing several, sharing ending drafts with others, writing the conclusion first. Take a stab at writing the conclusion first before you are so tired. All pieces of the research point to the ending, so make it count. Zinzer says the positive reason for ending well is that a good last sentence or last paragraph is a joy in itself. It gives the reader a lift and lingers long after the article is over. So if you want to know when the next podcast drops, find previous podcasts, infographics, PDFs with qualitative information and more, head to my website, marialayman.com, and opt into my communications, which are concise, content heavy, and I think importantly infrequent. Qualitative is stronger in community. A reflexive activity to do after the podcast in this podcast, I issued a challenge to focus on ways as writers we can hone our craft. So choose just one or two of the things I went over and try them in your next piece, maybe a piece you're writing right now, and it will tighten up your writing in ways that will refine and burnish your craft. Start by choosing a few things. Maybe you want to try a circular ending opening, get rid of unnecessary adverbs, linking being verbs, see what you think, and choose a few more ideas the next time you write. And when it's time to end, end.